Okay, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Well, thank you very much indeed, Charlotte, for that reading. And uh, good morning, everybody. Let me add my welcome. It's great to see you. Uh, It'd be great if you could have that uh, passage open in front of you and you'll find an outline on the inside of the notice sheet. And I'm going to ask God for his help uh, as we turn to this passage. So why don't you join me uh, as we pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the letter of 1 Peter and for all the ways that you speak into our world uh, through your words And we ask for your help this morning that we would put every distraction behind us, that we would give our attention to these words, that by your spirit you might address our fears, encourage our hopes, fill our horizons with the glory of Jesus and magnify him in our hearts so we might live for him and bring you glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning by introducing you to some Christian men and women who have recently hit the news. You'll recognize some, some perhaps not. Andrew Thorburn, 
uh, was the CEO of an Australian football club for just 24 hours. He was forced to resign from his job when a sermon from the church he attends, dating back to 2013, was discovered by some journalists to advocate views on abortion and homosexuality, which the football club said had no place in modern society. Andrew Thorburn was sacked for being a Christian. Caroline Farrow is a mother of five and the wife of a vicar who was arrested and body searched by police at her own home without a warrant for allegedly posting gender critical views on Twitter, which the police deemed malicious and abusive. Caroline Farrow was falsely accused for being a Christian. Kate Forbes was a popular and successful SNP whose candidature for the leadership of the Scottish National Party was suddenly withdrawn when her Christian views were deemed incompatible with that of leading a modern political party. Kate Forbes was silenced for being a Christian. The Reverend Richard Fothergill had his bank account closed when he questioned his bank's promotion of gender, uh, of um, LGBT agendas. Richard Fothergill was disadvantaged for being a Christian. Gladys Ledger, if that's how you pronounce that name, I think it might be Welsh, a teacher from a Church of England school in South London is facing a fitness to practice hearing after refusing to teach LGBT material because it conflicts with her Christian beliefs. Gladys Ledger is being investigated for being a Christian. Isabel Vaughan Spruce was searched and arrested by three police officers for silent prayer near an abortion clinic. Isabel Vaughan Spruce says she is the victim of thought policing for being a Christian. King Lowell, a counsellor at Northamptonshire Unitary Council for two years, has been barred from membership from seven organisations, including being suspended from the Conservative Party, because he voiced his concerns that naked men parading in a local pride march could be inappropriate for children. King Lawal has been cancelled for being a Christian. And then David Campanale became one of London's youngest councillors at age 22. He was the director of a major charity, a relief charity, director of the London Youth Games, an award-winning journalist for the BBC, was selected to stand for his local uh, Lib Dem party, but this time last year, in the course of a two-hour interrogation by 30 people from the party, he was deselected for holding views that they said he was not allowed to hold. David Campanale was silenced for being a Christian. And I could go on and on and on. And while many of those men and women have hit the headlines because of their relatively high profile, many more do not. Teachers, nurses, doctors, mothers, fathers, office workers, council employees, students, humiliated in seminars, children, silenced in classrooms. What five or ten years ago we could see coming over the horizon is now here. It's happening. It is the new normal. Mocked, fired, cancelled, demoted, 
passed over for promotion, arrested, investigated, humiliated, trolled, bullied, denounced. It seems that Christians in the UK are increasingly coming under pressure for no other reason than that they are Christians. And that Christian values are not simply unwelcome in our society, but are considered harmful and evil. And I think this is one of the reasons that the New Testament letter of 1 Peter is resonating with us so much as we look at it this term. Because this post-Christian world in which we find ourselves, as it is sometimes called, turns out to be very much like the pre-Christian world of Peter's readers. As I've said before, the letter was almost certainly written in the early years of the Emperor Nero's reign. So it's at this particular moment in time when Christianity was becoming under pressure, but it wasn't officially suppressed. It was not yet the official policy of the empire to outlaw Christianity. And so while Peter's readers are not yet being executed on crosses or burned on stakes or covered in animal skins and fed to dogs for entertainment, those horrors were just a few years away. They are at this point under pressure and increasingly so. Christianity is officially tolerated as a religion at this point, but on the ground... The Christians Peter is writing to are marginalized, misunderstood, disadvantaged, disliked, demoted, mocked, cancelled. And we know from history that things are only going to get harder from now on, much, much harder. Which is why, as we head into these final sections of the letter, we're going to hear the apostle addressing a particular theme the theme of suffering for standing up for Jesus in a frightening anti-God world. It's actually going to take us right to the end of the letter. You'll see it even in chapter 5 as he turns to the subject of church leaders. It is in that context of suffering for standing up for Jesus. There will, I think, be some things we can learn from this part of the letter about suffering in general, the kind of suffering that we all experience in a broken world, but his focus is on this particular form of suffering from now on. The hardship, the fear, the disadvantage that Christians will experience in the world as they experience life as a minority group in the midst of a hostile culture and how to respond to it. How is the church to live for Christ in a frightening anti-God world? That is our theme. Well, in this section, in 8 to 22, Peter has three lessons to teach us. In a frightening anti-God world, we are to live the good life together and speak up for Jesus because nothing can take away the victory he has won on the cross. Firstly then, we're to live the good life together in verses 8 to 12. You may remember that way back in 2, 11 to 12, Peter began to explain to his readers what living as Christians in a hostile world would mean. Have a look back at it now. Verse 12, he says, we are to live good lives among the pagans. Note that little word among very carefully. 
The Christian life is not a good life lived in isolation from the world, barricaded in some safe Christian ghetto or subculture or monastic life. But the Christian life is lived among the world. It is a distinctive lifestyle lived in the world that gets noticed by the world. And since then, Peter has been outlining what that good life looks like to various groups or various situations in life, hasn't he? So he's talked about what it means in terms of submission to authority. He's talked about what it means for those in slavery. He's talked about what it means for those in marriage and so on. And now look at verse 8. Finally, verse 8, he comes to all of you. In other words, what does this good life look like for us as a church community as a whole? And the first thing he speaks about is how Christians are to treat each other when under pressure from the world. And you'll see in verse 8 that he does that using five powerful phrases. Look at it with me. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and humble. Now, Peter's got this kind of little sandwich structure going here. So if you think about those five phrases like the fingers of a hand, you'll see that the central phrase, the one that holds everything together, is that phrase brotherly love, love as brothers, from the Greek word philadelphoi. And this is not just a nice sentiment. He's not just saying be nice to each other, but it's a potent reminder that to be a member of a church is to be a member of a family. Because remember what he has already said in chapter 1, that God has brought us into relationship with himself as Father, 1, verse 3 and 4. And because of that, we now have new relationships with each other. We are now family. Just take a moment to glance around you and perhaps clock somebody who is not biologically related to you. I've mentioned before that in some churches I know that is a hard thing to do, but we're quite a kind of eclectic group. So look at somebody you're not related to. Peter says you are family and therefore will be as committed to each other, as interested in each other's welfare, as members of the same family. But why does he say that here? Well, it's, it's nice to be part of a family in the good times. It's great to be part of a family in the good times. But the context here is the church under pressure. And so we mustn't read verse 8 as just a kind of a, a general, you know, nice way of behaving. This is how the church is to behave as it lives the good life among the pagans and receives pressure and hostility from the outside. And it's in those times, isn't it, that these five words really matter. So just think about it. How important it is to be in harmony when the hard things hit. Literally to be like-minded, to have the same basic worldview. That is, when the pressure comes, we might disagree on minor details, but... We're going to be for each other where it matters, aren't we? I think we had a little tiny taste of this during COVID, didn't we? Uh, COVID wasn't a, a sort of human enemy, but it was a time when the church had to really think and respond to what the world was saying in terms of 
obeying the rules of the government and meeting and not meeting and wearing masks and all those sorts of things. And uh, it was very interesting to, to know as a church, we had many different views on those things. You know, we had every extreme represented. Some people saying, well, you know, you, you've, you've broken that rule by wearing a mask for three seconds longer than you should have done. Or, or actually, you should be going to prison and being prepared to meet. You shouldn't be obeying the government at all. All of these extreme differences in opinion when the church was under pressure. But in God's grace, we, we kept united, didn't we? We were in harmony because... The main thing remain the main thing. And so I think this is an important thing. When the church is under pressure, we may disagree on minor details, but we're going to be for each other as a family. And then secondly, there'll be sympathy. When a brother or sister is feeling the pain of hardship or persecution, we will suffer with them. And then there'll be compassion. Literally, tender-heartedness, this is a, a word to do with emotion, the, the, the sense that somebody in your family is suffering, and so we suffer with them. And then finally, humility. The attribute that uh, the Greco-Roman culture that these people were living amongst despised most of all about Christians. This decision to put others' needs above your own. Not my good at your expense, but your good at my expense. Humility. And all of this in the context of facing hostility. And so the point of verse 8, I think, is that we don't face hostility alone, but together. It's heartwarming, isn't it? When you see you know, someone fouled on a football pitch or someone injured on a rugby pitch and, and the team gathers around, picks them up, you know, argues with the referee for the person or whatever, whatever it is, or soldiers on a battlefield who risk their lives to rescue one of their fallen. This team spirit, this sense of being a band of brothers makes everyone feel stronger. And how much more vital is this sense of being in it together when Christians are feeling marginalized from the world? How good to know that you're not on your own. And so maybe there is someone you know who is feeling the pressure right now. Maybe there's someone you know who is the only Christian in their office or workplace or street or classroom and they are feeling the pressure. Well, how are you going to apply verse 8 to them? Is there some way you can rally to them, put your arm around them, encourage them, give them strength, remind them that they are not on their own, that we're in this together? It can make such a difference, can't it? If you're the only Christian in a setting, it can be very hard. If there's two of you, it suddenly feels so much easier, doesn't it? And maybe at the end, there's an action point you could jot down to remind yourself to do. Is there somebody you can get alongside and strengthen them and apply this? Because we're family. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, using a different metaphor of the body, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Well, verse 8 is actually the easiest part of this passage to do and to 
follow. Verse 9, it gets a little bit harder. Because in verse 9, he says this. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, it's one thing to live the good life among the pagans as a church, as we rally around together and treat each other in that particular way. But now, Peter says, we've got to treat the people who are causing us the pain in exactly the same way. And I want you to think with me just how hard this is to do. And I don't know what you're like when it comes to road rage. But it does reveal something about our hearts, doesn't it? You know, when someone cuts in on you and, and you know, does something that is unfair and unjustifiable and dangerous, they cut in on you, they force you to break or force you to swerve. Your instant reaction is, die. <laughs> I actually want them to crash and burn and die. Because they nearly made me do that. So of course I do. That's what they deserve. Or at the very least, if I'm feeling sort of charitable, at the very least, I want them to know how stupid they've been. And so am I the only person who has ever accelerated instead of braking just to get a little bit close into their wing mirror so they can see my anger? Maybe I am the only person who's done that. I don't know. Maybe I'm a particularly horrible person. But revenge is so satisfying, isn't it? And so human. And so for verse 9 to be true, something must have happened to our hearts, mustn't it? To pay back evil with blessing. To actually want the person not to die, but to thrive to actually want them, understand that word blessing, not just to have a good life and a safe journey home, but to actually want them to share the forgiveness and salvation that you have received yourselves. Now, I've illustrated that with a road rage situation. When someone has actually, when you think about it, inconvenienced you for three seconds. <laughs> How much harder when you face real evil and injustice? When you lose that cherished job, when your career cannot get any further because of the Christian values you hold, because your essay is downgraded for a biblical view that you've expressed, I've heard of that situation recently, this happens. When you're humiliated for speaking up about Jesus. Or what about... Just to push this even further, what about the kind of suffering many Christians in the non-Western world are actually experiencing? Uh, do you remember my friend Prem, my Nepalese pastor friend that I interviewed on a Zoom call in prayer tea a few weeks ago? Um, do you remember his little story about how that little church in Kathmandu raised a heap of money to buy a building, to build a building, sacrificially giving money and they put up this building that was going to be their church building. 
and the local Hindu council confiscated the building and forced them to demolish it. Oh, but they did say they could keep the rubble. How kind was that? How would we respond to that kind of pressure? Or flick through the website, Open Doors, and you'll see stories about churches being burnt to the ground in northern Nigeria, pastors killed, women and girls routinely raped. Christians in North Korea, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian, executed in prison. Friends of ours in, in mainland China who, you know, we, we, we can't hear much detail, but when we do hear detail, we, it seems that their situation is getting worse and worse. They're being downgraded, disadvantaged, forced underground. Or oppressive governments in places that you don't hear much about, like Nicaragua, Cuba, Mexico. Somalia, where women are raped and abused, where Christians are hunted and exposed. Christians in prison in Eritrea, lawlessness in Libya, torture and oppression in Pakistan, India, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan. It doesn't make the news very much, does it? And does verse 9 apply to them? Well, look at it again with me. Just look how clear Peter is. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, if that sounds surprisingly like a kind of merit and reward system, which is alien to New Testament theology, we need to remember that this is actually the way Peter's describing the Christian life all along. Peter has used that word called several times in the letter to describe the Christian journey, and he's used the word inheritance to describe the destination. So he's not saying anything new here. What he is saying in verse 9 is that the call to inherit the blessing of God is the call to live like this. He's saying the Christian journey, which ends in the blessing of God's inheritance, includes paying back evil with blessing. This is part of the deal. And so he's not setting up some kind of system of reward that if you do this, then God will do that. No, he's just saying this is the deal. This is what you've been called to. If you're going to live like this, if you're going to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, then this is the way you're going to live. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the good life. Now, we need to get our heads around because uh, we need to get our heads around this because this is going to actually open up the passage for us uh, quite helpfully, and there are some tricky bits coming. So this is going to help us, I think. You'll notice that straight after verse 9, Peter follows this with a fairly lengthy quote from Psalm 34. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this is not just a, a nice sort of poetic way of elaborating verse 9, although it does do that, doesn't it? It's a beautiful picture of verse 9. But actually, there's more going on, and Psalm 34 takes us back to a particular moment in David's life narrated in 1 Samuel 21. 
It's a time when David himself is in exile, a bit like the readers of 1 Peter. It's a time when David is being oppressed by Saul, a bit like the readers of 1 Peter. And if you were here just a few years ago, you may remember when we looked at this on Sunday mornings, it's that moment when David actually takes refuge among the Philistines, and because they also want to kill him, he pretends to be mad, makes marks on the door, lets saliva run down his face. And this is the little context that we're told is for Psalm 34. You may also remember <clears throat> that this was a time when David had many opportunities to take revenge on Saul, but refrained. You may remember that at the time when David was back at the back of a cave, actually relieving himself, I think, and, and Saul comes in, and David is so close to Saul that he had an opportunity to kill him, but he didn't, and he actually blesses him instead. And this happens a couple of times in that section of 1 Samuel. And so I think all of this is in mind, as Peter quotes Psalm 34, that David is putting into practice verse 9. He is blessing the person who is constantly after his blood. And I think Peter wants us to ask, how can he do that? What is it that David has in his mind that enables him to face that horror with such fear and integrity and with blessing? Well, we won't turn to it now for the sake of time, but if you read the psalm in full, you'll see that it is, in fact, a psalm of praise for God's ultimate rescue. So listen to how it continues, and I've put these words on the screen. This is how the psalm continues from the bit Peter quotes. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Now just think about that. David is on the run, in exile, beleaguered, threatened, despised, mistreated, misunderstood. He's got saliva running down his beard. And in the psalm, he says, those God delivers are actually radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. It's amazing contrast, isn't it? What is going on on the outside and what is going on on the inside? On the outside, David is in exile, pretending to be mad, being threatened. But on the inside, he's setting apart God as Lord. He is remembering God's salvation. His face is radiant because he knows that in the end, God will vindicate him. And this is the key. To look at suffering in the face to look at evil in the face, but to know that God is God, that is how you live the good life. Now, if this is David's attitude, and if this sounds familiar, it's because we've already seen it. In fact, Nathan quoted it earlier as we re remembered our own situation before God. Just glance at it again, verse 23 of chapter 2. When they hurled their insults at Jesus on the cross, he did not retaliate. When he suffered on the cross, he made no threats, 
Instead, he did what David did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, what David modeled in 1 Samuel 21 and wrote about in Psalm 34, Jesus perfectly fulfills as he dies on the cross. He is the perfect model of someone who blesses in the midst of suffering. And this is why Peter says, for the second time, to this you were called. This is the Christian life. As we follow Jesus down that path, this is the deal. To suffer with him and to respond to suffering the way he did. And I think that has very practical and powerful encouragement for us. If we are suffering in any way for being a Christian, or if we will at some point in the future. Because suffering always feels, doesn't it, that it's an aberration from the plan. That's why it's suffering. It feels like it shouldn't be happening. Suffering always feels like this is not what God intended. But this is telling us that suffering from the Christian is not an aberration from the good life. It is the good life. It's not an interruption from discipleship. It is discipleship. It's not a failure of the plan of God. It is the plan of God. God's promise of deliverance is not a promise to keep us from hardship, but to save us through hardship. Note that because we're going to come back to it. This is part of the way God gets us to the inheritance. Now, what does this mean in practice on a Monday morning? It means doing what both David and Jesus did. And looking evil in the face, praising God, living the good life. When your colleague gossips about you or your flatmates leave you out or your boss sidelines you or your unbelieving spouse criticizes you, this gives you the key to live the good life and respond with blessing. To wish them well, to pray for their salvation, to offer forgiveness because this is what Jesus has done before you. And to do it together. So there's our first lesson. In a frightening anti-God world, live the good life together. But that's not all Peter's got to say. Because remember that this church is on mission. We are not just about survival. We are about speaking up for Jesus, 13 to 17. Now, at first sight, verse 13 seems to offer some reprieve, some hope of a safer, less fearful existence. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? This would suggest that as long as I am doing good, no one's going to harm me. Keep my head down, be kind to people, work hard at work, and I'm, I'm going to be okay. It sounds like that, doesn't it? But of course, that would contradict everything Peter said so far, including verse 16, where he suggests again that living the good life may not be the ticket out of persecution, but may be the thing that attracts persecution. And so I think it's more likely that Peter has a grander idea in mind in verse 13. I think he's talking about ultimate harm. Who is ultimately going to harm you? 
He's thinking of that final safety and vindication where the persecuted Christian is safe in God's hands in the end. It's the kind of truth expressed in Isaiah 50, verse 9. The Lord God will help me, who will condemn me? Or by Paul in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can against us? Or in Jesus' uh, words of Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more, but I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the idea in verse 13. Which introduces for us this idea of fear, which he goes on to explain in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah 8. And again, as with Psalm 34, the context is helpful. Let me just sketch the context of Isaiah 8 quickly. In Isaiah's time, 800 years before Jesus, Israel had split into north and south. And the northern kingdom of Israel had become the enemy, at this point, of the southern kingdom of Judah, had joined hands with the nation of Aram, which is roughly where Syria is now. And so little Judah is left in the south, and the enemies are bearing down on them from the north. This coalition of terror. And it's into this situation that the prophet Isaiah speaks a word of encouragement. He says that God will defeat Judah's enemies. The nations will cry out in war, but God is going to shatter them. But what I want us to notice is the specific encouragement that Isaiah gives to Judah. He doesn't say, don't fear. He says, choose who you fear. Have a look at it on the screen. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread, and he will be a sanctuary. In other words, you've got to fear somebody. You can either fear the human enemy, or you can fear God. And if you fear God, then you need fear no human. And so Peter is drawing a deliberate parallel between his readers and the people of God in Isaiah's day. In the face of an enemy that is looking genuinely frightening, God's people are to trust God and live that good life. Those who fear God will find him to be a sanctuary. Now, with that context in mind, have a look at verse 15. And look how Peter applies this principle. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's useful to know that the word translated respect is the word fear. It's the same word that Peter's just used in verse 14. You can see why the Bible translators have gone for respect, because fear would seem to contradict what he's just said. Make up your mind, Peter. Should we fear them or not fear them? But of course, in verse 15, he's not talking about fearing people. He's talking about fearing God. In other words, Peter now applies what Isaiah said to Judah 
directly to the Christian living in a hostile world. In Isaiah, he said, God is your sanctuary. Fear God. He is the one you are to regard as holy. Now look at what he says about Christ in verse 15. It is Christ who is now the sanctuary. Set apart him in your hearts as Lord, just as Israel were to do for God in the Old Testament. This is a side point, but if you've ever wondered whether the New Testament does directly call Christ divine God, then here is a classic example. What Isaiah says about Yahweh, the Lord, in the Old Testament, Peter says about Jesus in the New Testament, but that's just a a bonus point, if you like. The main point is, if we have Christ as Lord of our hearts, it is him alone we will fear. It is his opinion that matters, and we will have no fear in a hostile world. Which means we will speak out for Jesus. Now, it's instructive to remember that Peter himself had to learn this lesson the hard way. The gospel accounts spare Peter no embarrassment, do they? In recounting the moment, Peter's courage failed during the trial of Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times, Peter was asked the direct question, are you one of his disciples? And every time, he bottled it, didn't he? I am not. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. But then we get to Acts 3 and Acts 4, and Peter is now speaking openly, boldly, being punished and flogged and going back out and speaking. So in Acts 5.41, after being flogged, we read that the apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Peter's fears have been transferred, you see, from man to God. But look how he's applying this here. He's saying if we have Christ as Lord of our hearts, we too will speak. We will speak for Jesus in the face of hostility. I read two books in preparation for this talk which made the case for answering no to the question, do we have responsibility to speak for Jesus? They argue that verse 15 means that we are to be ready if someone asks us, but we can leave to the capital E evangelist with the specific gift, the business of calling people to repent and taking the good news of the gospel to the world. See, they've put the emphasis there, haven't they, on the word prepared. We've got to be prepared to give an answer, to give a a defense when the gospel is challenged. And most of us don't feel skilled enough, do we, to actually take the gospel to the world. But I think that understanding comes from a misplaced emphasis on the word prepared, which just means ready. Ready. Try instead putting the emphasis on what Peter says at the beginning of verse 15. In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. So you can do all the preparation you like. You can read every book. You can learn every gospel outline. You can go to every training course. 
But it's when Jesus is Lord of your heart that we will find the courage to speak. And I've said this before, I think the decision to share the gospel or not is not a skill thing, it is a heart thing. It is when Jesus is Lord of our hearts that we will want to share the gospel. The objection still comes back, though, but, but isn't this a passive thing? Peter's not saying, is he, that we are to walk up to people on the street and give them the gospel? Well, that's right. But look at what he does say. We are to be prepared to give an answer for those who ask the reason for the hope that you have. Now, when might that happen? When might someone ask you for the reason for the hope? Well, it's when your life looks hopeful. When it is evident from your lifestyle and your language that your hope is not in this world. When you are living and speaking in such a way that your worldview just clashes with the worldviews of those around you, that is when people are going to ask. And so if you want to be an evangelist, you need to be a hopeful person. If you want to be an evangelist, you don't need to come on a training course. You need Christ to be magnified in your life and in your heart. And so I think the best preparation you can do, the best training we can do, is to allow Jesus to grow big in our hearts, magnify him, and be someone who is actually living for the hope of resurrection, not for the hope of this world. And then people will ask. But that raises a question. How can we become such people? How do you become a hopeful people? How do you know if your hope is even in the right place? Well, that brings us to Peter's final lesson. In a frightening anti-God world, live the good life together and speak up for Jesus because nothing can take away the victory he has won on the cross, 18 to 22. Now just look with me at verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I think the first half of verse 18 is one of the clearest statements anywhere about the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross. Have a look at it. It's all there, isn't it? The historical event. Christ died. The reason he died for sins once for all. The effectiveness of that death, the righteous for the unrighteous. The result to bring you to God. This is so comprehensive, so profound, that in one sense it's all we need to know about Jesus and the gospel. It's also so simple that our two to four-year-olds have learnt it in terms of that big swap that Katie told us about. The very best, that's Jesus, for the very worst, that's us. That's verse 18, isn't it? Simples. And if you are not yet convinced that you should be a Christian, here is one thing to take away from this morning. If everything else is sort of lost in the fog, then take away verse 18, 
part one, because it takes us right to the heart of what we're about. And take it to heart. This is Christianity. Jesus' death means you can know God. He has fixed the greatest problem of your life, your relationship with God. And so can I suggest, if you've never done it before, why not make this the morning when you actually accept what Jesus has done? That you receive his forgiveness, that you become part of his family. And when we sing the words of our final song in a moment, perhaps you can join in with them for the first time. Lift high the name of Jesus, of Jesus our King. Make known the power of his grace, the beauty of his peace. Remember how his mercy reached and we cried out to him. He lifted us to solid ground, to freedom from our sin. So take advantage. Come back to God. But the reason verse 18 is here is because it actually summarizes the the point of this final section. Jesus suffered on the cross more terribly and more unjustly than anyone has ever suffered, and yet... It worked out well. It led to Jesus' own resurrection. It led to his vindication. It led to his salvation. And so you can't get a better illustration of the point of this passage than verse 18, part 1. Jesus died. He suffered. He brought blessing from evil. And if you've got that, fantastic. Because the second half of verse 18 and the rest of the passage just gets a little bit more tricky. And we come, in fact, to what Martin Luther and pretty much everyone since him have said are the most difficult verses in the New Testament. It actually reminds us, uh, me, uh, just to give us a mental break before we hit it, it reminds me of a, of a particular ride at Blackpool Pleasure Beach. I can't remember the name of the ride now. But it, it starts off nice and gentle. It's sort of a roller coaster, and you've been told it's a white-knuckle ride, and you're just sort of thinking, actually, this is really, this is really easy. And this is what the passage has been like. By the time you get to verse 18, it's nothing too scary or difficult. But without warning, the track just falls away and your stomach does this lurch and you're caught screwing all the way and you don't know which way is up and which way is down. And that is what this passage is like. Verse 18a, very straightforward. And then he was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the arks of when Noah was being built and... Whoa. (laughs) Who are the spirits? Why are they in prison? How did Christ go and preach to them? And when? And what's all this got to do with baptism? And so there are lots of bumps and twists and turns that could keep us here for a very long time. And if you're interested in the details, catch me after. We will get a very strong cup of coffee, a wet towel around our heads, and we will sit down and we will work it out together. But what I will say in the time we've got left is just as that ride at Blackpool Pleasure Beach, the bumpy bits turn out to be the best bits. Although this might seem like a complex end to our time this morning, Peter has not done this to us to be difficult. He's not just decided, you know, he's going to lob in a few tricky bits just to keep us awake. He's actually saved the best till last. And so if you're inclined to drift off, come back now, because this is a wonderfully encouraging end when we see it. 
Before I tell you what I think it's about, it's worth just giving two or three options uh, of the main ways this has been interpreted over the years. The first, which goes back to Augustine in the 4th century, reads the spirits in prison as human unbelievers at the time of Noah. And the spirit of Christ is preaching through Noah while he is building the ark. So the spirits in prison is a metaphorical way of describing human beings ensnared in sin. And the preaching of Christ is through Noah at that time. Well, let's call this the Jesus goes back option. Jesus goes back to the time of Noah. Now, this is not such a bonkers idea because actually in 2 Peter, uh, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. And Augustine was no idiot either. One problem with this view, though, is that human beings, whether alive or dead, are almost never referred to in the Bible as spirits. It's also hard to account for the word went in verse 19. It's a strange word to say that Jesus in the spirit of Noah went. And so for that and other reasons, I don't think the Jesus went back view is right. The second view sees the spirits in prison as sinful human beings who perished at the time of Noah's flood and are now in prison in hell. And between Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus went down to hell to preach the gospel to those spirits, either in judgment or salvation, two sort of sub-options of this view. So let's call this the Jesus went down view. The main problem with this, of course, is it contradicts everything the Bible says about judgment and salvation. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And even if you take the view that Christ descended to hell to proclaim judgment on those there, actually there's no evidence in the Bible, I don't think, that Jesus did descend into hell in that literal sense. So I think we can reject that Jesus went down option two. So Jesus went back, preaching at the time of Noah. Jesus went down, descended to hell, which leads the third view, which is that after his resurrection, Jesus proclaimed victory and judgment over evil spirits, not human beings. And let me tell you why, very briefly why I think this view is right, and then more importantly, why it matters. Three questions. First, who are the spirits in prison? If they're not human beings, the most likely option is that they are angels who sinned. And the angels who sinned at the time of Noah are most likely the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6 who earned God's wrath by having sex with human women. You can read it for yourself, Genesis chapter 6. The reason I think this is likely is because in 2 Peter, Peter's second letter, again in the context of the flood, he says this on the screen, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So that's Peter's own language in 2 Peter 2. It sounds very much like what he's saying here, doesn't it? So who are the spirits in prison? I think they are angels who've rebelled against God, being punished. So the second question is, when did Jesus go and preach to them? 
Well, the answer comes in verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 18 has its own difficulties with the grammar, but in my view, it can only be talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus in the context of the first part of verse 18. He was put to death in the body. That means he really died as a man. And then he was raised by the power of the Spirit. And therefore, verse 19 must come after the resurrection, which rules out the first two options. It rules out Jesus going back and preaching in the time of Noah by the Spirit. It rules out Jesus descending to hell in between because verse 19 comes after the resurrection. And therefore, the third question is, when did Jesus do it? When did he preach to these spirits? What journey did he take? And that's when this passage starts to really become meaningful for us and very clear, I think. So you notice Peter uses two identical verbs for go at the beginning and end of the section. He went, verse 19, to preach in prisons. And then verse 22, he went into heaven at God's right hand and is now there with all authority, power, in submission to him and angels as well. In other words, this is not a journey back to Noah's time. It's not a journey down into hell, but it's a journey up into glory and vindication. This whole section is describing Jesus' death in which he conquered sin, his resurrection in which he overcame death, and now that he's declared to the universe that Jesus is the ruler of all things. It's a journey up. A march of vindication, a proclamation of victory. And so why does any of this matter? Well, the final two pieces of the puzzle are baptism and Noah. Peter launches into this theme of baptism simply to remind his readers that this applies to them. That if they have been baptized in water, that is fully immersed in water as a symbol of death, they've also been raised out of the water as a symbol of resurrection. Water at the time of Noah brought death and judgment. But with Christ, you can be taken through the judgment. You can be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so if you are a Christian, you get to go on the same journey that Jesus went on. Death and resurrection. You can face your enemies because Jesus is Lord. And so there's one more part of the puzzle. Why Noah? Why bring Noah into this? Well, look at what he says. Verse 20. In the ark... Only a few people, eight in all, were saved. Only a few people, a a little group, were brought through that trauma of the flood into salvation beyond. And so this brings us right back to the point of the whole passage. Would not those eight people feel a little bit like Peter's readers feel? 
Wouldn't those eight people putting their trust in this wooden boat when no one could see the judgment coming, wouldn't they feel a minority in a hostile culture, mocked and ridiculed and oppressed? And Peter's point is that God is going to use the very waters of judgment to save them. And Peter's point to his readers is that God is going to use the very trauma of their suffering as the means to bring them out into the inheritance that he has promised them. This is what the whole passage has been about. Peter is giving us reasons why, verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good than suffer for doing evil. Because if we do that, we know we're on the right path. And that we're living the life to which we've been called. Remember the names and faces I showed you at the beginning? It does seem, doesn't it, and I don't want to overdo this and sort of, you know, create a sense of fear or anything like that, but it, it does seem that this is going to be more common. Uh, I said a few weeks ago I'd be surprised if some of our children and young people did not spend time in prison for being Christian, and that we as parents and grandparents, we need to prepare them for that, don't we? And we might respond to this and think, well, what a terrible time to be alive. Wouldn't it have been better to have lived in the 1950s, you know, Victorian times or whatever? Or we might respond by saying, well, let's just keep our heads down. Let's retreat and keep safe. I don't want my grandchildren to be put in prison. But I think this passage is encouraging us to lift up our heads and speak for Christ because to this we've been called. In fact, this is now an opportunity, isn't it, to live the good life. We are now facing more and more opportunities to put God's reputation before our own, knowing that David has done it before us knowing that Peter has done it before us. And knowing that when Jesus looked the horror of the cross in the face, he blessed. And God wins. So, brothers and sisters, in a frightening anti-God world, live the good life together. Speak up for Jesus. Because nothing can take away the victory he has won on the cross. Well, let's have a moment to reflect, perhaps to write something in that little box, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has lived the good life for us completely that the very evil of the cross is what brought us the blessing of salvation. And we ask that each of us now will trust the cross, will receive the blessing of the inheritance that you've called us to receive, and will follow the call to live for Jesus, knowing nothing and no one can take it away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.